Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey DMR sucks Knockreiner. I know it has nothing to do with the topics, but it's on my mind. Uh, okay, do you mean DRM? Or DRM, D- did I say okay. DMR? Oh my god. Yeah, there we go. Well, I wonder, is... I need to look up what I just said sucks. There's oh. probably something for that acronym that I don't even know. On today's yes, episode... DRM sucks. Yes. It is time to review the latest internet security report from the WatchGuard Net Lab. And so, for time's sake, and without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and DMR our way in. Please don't Apparently, be something Apparently that's like some sort of marksman rifle is the first thing that came back to that acronym. I do play Call of Duty. So uh, let's start today with our one giant topic, and that is the quarter one 2023 internet security report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab. Uh, So for frequenters of the podcast or of WatchGuard Threat Lab marketing, I mean reports, uh, you're already aware that we put out a security report every single quarter, but Corey, maybe pitch it to you for uh, why we... uh, spend time to tabulate all this data and write it all up for these folks? Yeah, sure, Mark. Uh, so first of all, it's it's quantifiable primary research from us, meaning it actually comes from our products. We talk about security a lot based on what we see in the threat, see in the threat landscape. But, you know, a lot of that's anecdotal until you have statistics and quantifiable threat intelligence. So with this report, we're gathering quantifiable threat intelligence from our network security, our endpoint security products, uh, our identity security to some extent, and things like DNS watch that monitors domains. And by gathering this data from a really big statistically relevant sample set of you know, not nearly all of our fireboxes, because you do have to opt in to share this with us, but around 80,000 devices at least, it gives us a pretty good quantifiable idea of what's going on on the internet. So we gather this real data of what's being seen on the internet, we analyze it geographically, and the whole point of it, though, isn't just to scare you with the, what the bad guys are doing. It's to actually try to get our team and our analysts to figure out some trends and to both use those trends to, to protect against the threats we see, but extrapolate what might happen next and what defensive, uh, you know, future defensive postures we might be able to add to your arsenal in order to defend against what we see happening. So that's essentially why we do it. Yeah, and we uh, this year went head first into the uh, the belief of new year, new me, and did a bit of a revamp of how we show some of these statistics within the report to make sure we can give an accurate, uh, referenceable trend quarter after quarter and year after year. Uh, we've- and before you dive into the how, Mark, to, to me, it's all about perspective change. I'm probably aging myself. I'm already pop pop Corey on this podcast, Mark, but... Were you old enough, do you remember in the mall when you would go up to these 
pictures that just looked like random kaleidoscope patterns. They were like poster board frame pictures and you'd have to like stare at them cross-eyed before anything popped up. Did you ever, do you remember those in the mall? I, have, I don't know in the mall, but I've seen them in like bookshops and stuff before. Oh gosh. Maybe the mall is what ages me. You guys have Amazon now. But anyways, the, the whole idea is a perspective shift. If you, if out there our listeners remember those pictures, they look like pretty neat patterns but it's not until you kind of got that cross-eyed perspective shift which was relatively it took a little time to get to that suddenly a hidden picture would pop out so the what we really did in this report that mark's about to talk about is that perspective shift that different view can give you new and interesting insights that you haven't had before like i compare it to maybe you've lived in the same city for a long time one day you decide to hike up a mountain next to your city and when you look down at your city from a whole new perspective things that felt far apart were closer you might see relations to two different things from a high that you didn't see when you were down below so just gathering that new perspective might bring out new insights so as mark said we use this new year opportunity to try to change the way we do things one to get a new perspective but I think Mark will also talk about how it's also, too, to make sure that we, we get rid of outliers and make sure our data is, you know, really showing you the real trends. If I'd uh, summarize what Corey just said, it's the only way to understand anything in our report is to stare at it cross-eyed. <laughs> That's probably how our analysts feel before we write it and make it simplified for our readers. But yeah, we have been staring at this data cross-eyed for quite a while. <laughs> Um, so before jumping into like some of the changes we've made, we also have improved the endpoint section as well too, uh, starting with this quarter with just a massive amount of additional data and ad additional views of that data from our EPDR and legacy Panda AD360 endpoints deployed all around the world. So I guess like those that have been through this rodeo before, you know, we'll start with what we call the Firebox feed which is a collection of all of the telemetry we get from Firebox security appliances that have opted into sharing it with us. Um, that includes everything from our three layers of anti-malware, so gateway antivirus, the signature-based protection, intelligent AV, the machine learning, or I guess I have to use the word AI now, based engine, and uh, APT. No, please don't. We, we can be technically accurate while the rest of the marketing world are the ones that push AI. There we go. And APT blocker, the sandboxed behavioral detection engine, backed up also by IPS, our signature-based intrusion prote protection system, uh, and then DNS Watch, our DNS firewalling service. So all of these services, when you've opted into sharing this intelligence with us, it's a single checkbox in the Firebox, by the way, please do it. Uh, we get a view anytime one of these services detects a threat and some information about what it came from, signatures, so on and so forth. Um, so starting with this quarter now, instead of giving you just the raw, you know, 15 million uh, numbers that we see for malware detections that really not super meaningful quarter after quarter, although they are exciting to see, uh, we're splitting it out into just telling you on average how much the average Firebox appliance detected for any given service or any given category of threat. So like as an example of what I'm getting at, when we talk about malware in quarter one of 2023, the average Firebox appliance 
stops 932 malware detections on each device. So just shy of 1,000 malware hits blocked at the perimeter for every single Firebox out there on average. Uh, we can look at that. And, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was oh, just going to say this is kind of a good perspective change, like an example of a perspective change in that in the past, we've always given you total malware by the full worldwide aggregate, which would be a number like 24 million, uh, you know, malware hits for the, you know, boxes reporting in that we saw. Uh, interesting big number if you're looking at the world, but a lot of our readers out there are like a single network administrator of, of one organization or one network. It might be one or maybe five fireboxes. So I think the perspective change here is now you have the idea of how does malware affect me, you know, my organization personally. If you have a firebox, it's right around a thousand malware samples that could have got through every quarter that have been blocked. We see. We did extrapolate if you are interested in what the number would look like. Like if we added up all their boxes reporting in and we made the assumption that all of them had all our anti-malware services, the global number would have been over 72 million, actually closer to 73 million. So still a lot of malware out there, still big amounts. But this new perspective kind of gives you the, what would this look like for my device or if I managed one or more network security appliance. And an important thing to note, these are detections that we saw, that they're actual individual events that popped up in our telemetry feed. And we can only see events from traffic that our customers are inspecting and that have opted into sharing it with us. And we found still that a sizable portion of network administrators out there don't inspect encrypted traffic. And when we look at the, the malware coming in from uh, devices that do inspect encrypted traffic, around 96% of malware detections arrived over an encrypted connection. And what this means is the actual malware detection volumes are probably significantly higher, orders of magnitude higher than what we're able to report, uh, just because the overwhelming majority of traffic out there is just is not being inspected at the perimeter. And so we're missing the view into that, unfortunately. Uh, but what you can get is just extrapolating it out, 932 detections per device. And if we are only seeing, what is it, 4% of all the malware in that case, it is potentially significantly more arriving over encrypted channels like HTTPS web uh, connections and anything using TLS within a, uh, an email proxy. Um, one of the other stats that we track every single quarter is what we call the zero-day malware number. Uh, to prevent Corey from getting into more fights on Twitter, uh, when we say zero-day <laughs> malware, we don't mean a zero-day exploit. We mean malware that does not have a signature. That e could either be brand new malware or more commonly old malware that's been run through some sort of evasion tool like a packer or a cryptor to let it evade these signature-based detections. And to be very simple, by the way, while we like to extrapolate the idea of these results to talk about signature-based in general, what it really means is it doesn't have a signature with our signature-based inspection. We use a particular engine with the Firebox, and we know that that malware sample wasn't detected by our signatures, but our signatures are are wide. I mean, they do, they catch what most signature-based inspection catches. So while this really is just one product's signature-based versus our more advanced techniques with machine learning and behavioral analysis, we theorize or hypothesize that 
this is probably true of every signature-based engine out there because, you know, when you go to VirusTotal and you look at the results for, say, everyone might have one or two signatures, another doesn't, but for the most part, the, everyone that's signature-based has most of the noise on the internet. It's showing that most of the malware samples coming are at least from a binary level unique. Again, like Mark said, it's probably more like packing, encrypting, or other evasion techniques. It's not someone rewriting a brand new malware instance, but just little changes that on a binary level make it look different. But just to be clear, we really are only looking at our engines, but we hypothesize that it's probably true of all signature-based antivirus in general. Yeah, especially because ours is the best. Uh, so when we look at <laughs> when we look at that zero-day malware number for quarter one of this year, 70% of the malware that we saw was classified as this zero-day malware, which is big on its own. But when we look specifically at encrypted malware, which remember the overwhelming majority of malware does arrive over an encrypted connection, that jumps up to 93% of malware is zero-day malware. So we're seeing threat actors combine both encrypted channels, maybe not intentionally. Like The reality is most web traffic th these days is encrypted on its own. But combining that with evasive malware techniques or tools in order to make basic malware evasive with a decent amount of success, I'd imagine, for organizations yeah. that don't have layers of protection. To comment, I think some of it's intentional, by the way. I think the point you're trying to make is uh, for compromised sites, there's lots of different ways bad guys can use web-based delivery of these files. And maybe if they compromise the site, it's not intentional to them, whether it's HTTP or HTTPS traffic. But I would argue that when we look at the intentional sites they make, meaning their command and control infrastructure, or even malware delivery domain infrastructure, where they might, even if they compromise a the site, they might have it redirect to their own server. They are more, con by they, I mean threat actors are more commonly having a certificate and having HTTPS traffic for their own site, because I do think they realize the benefit and we said it before, and so have as everyone else, love Lex Encrypt. I think it's super important to get SMBs and others to make web traffic secure, which we 100% support. But the truth is, Lex, Let's Encrypt has lowered the bar, especially financially, for any malware actor to secure their malicious infrastructure. So I think you're right that a lot of the malware showing up over encrypted connections is just accidental because it happens to be the channel that it you know it's maybe a legitimate site or something compromised or put on a file share that happens to be encrypted anyways but i do think even intentionally malware authors have gotten better or at least uh, threat actors have gotten better at securing their own infrastructure yep and so in the report we go into detail about a few other views of the data both like the top malware that we see uh, by volume, top by most number of individually impacted networks, as well as a, a deep dive into some specific detections that we had for the quarter. There's one I wanted to highlight, though. Uh, so it was a new to the top malware by volume uh, detection called Linux Downloader AK. So generic Linux downloader, but in this case, we were able to actually link a few of the payloads to a specific Chinese-based threat actor called 8220 Gang. Uh, did this by uh, analyzing a command and control domain within the, the malware script itself that was reused from known previous activity from them. Uh, some of the, the actions that it takes, it goes and tries to disable the, uh, the firewall within Linux, uh, UFW, tries to remove any programs that are configured to run on startup, presumably your anti-malware services, um, even attempts to disable 
the what's called the LD library preload, basically libraries that are executed first when it's when a application is trying to find what to run. Pretty common method of uh, uh, pre what is the word I'm looking for? Pretexting. Wait, no. Precursor for <laughs> uh, a, a library injection attack. Uh, at the end of the day, we saw it uh, distributing both remote access trojans and crypto miners, depending on the sample we saw. Um, and one thing that was interesting I wanted to highlight, though. So uh, it's a threat actor we believe is based out of China. One of the actions it takes is actually disabling Alibaba cloud-related services. Um, so my takeaway from this is, you know, in general, we don't see Chinese threat actors targeting organizations within China. Kind of similar how we don't see Russian threat actors targeting Russians. But potentially, this is one specifically going after Southeast Asian victims uh, that still use Alibaba Cloud. Obviously, Alibaba Cloud's not very popular in the Western world. You have the likes of AWS and Google and Azure instead. So that was my hot take uh, on top of the research uh, that Trevor did within this section for the report. Um, but yeah. By the way, I don't think uh, there's a lot of other malware samples uh, Trevor, our analyst, went into and other stuff. I do think at this the one highlight for malware I would like to add, Mark, that is tied to this one. You know, one of the things we show is the top 10 malware by volume. Uh, and that list doesn't always change a ton, but there's always some new ones. But one of the interesting things is there were four new malware variants on that list. And of those four new ones, three of them were related to state-sponsored or related to the nations, China and Russia. So this one was one of the three. And there were two other samples. You know, this one looked like it could have been Russia, but it was China. But there was a real Russian one and there was an additional China one too. I think all of them like this particular one was a threat actor that was probably more criminally related than state sponsor related. But it's interesting to see China and Russia in particular knowing they're they're not only heavy state sponsored threat actors, but they're they're heavy states that seem to be uh, safe havens for criminals as well. Criminals. Yeah. yeah. Not that the U.S. isn't harboring its own criminals, but at least in the certainly world, we tend to go after them and they promptly get arrested. By I, I would say if one country uh, also releases uh, indictments for them, we would extradite real criminals, too. And uh, that's why the safe haven, especially in Russia, anyways, there's been indictments from the FBI for criminals in Russia and China, I believe. Uh, but either case, three of the four new things were associated with, you know, uh, heavily cyber active nation states, China and Russia. So again, we go into more details for the malware section in the report. Highly recommend checking it out. Uh, but for time's sake, moving on to the network attack section, where we look at uh, events detected by the Firebox's intrusion prevention service. And we found in quarter one of 2023, every Firebox on average had around 460 detections per device. So just under half a thousand or so over the course of the quarter. And again, those that are frequenters of this report, or at least our podcast covering it, you know that what Corey just said for the malware section is absolutely true, but it's even more so true for the network attack section and that our top 10 threats by volume don't tend to change very often. And they're also very top heavy. We believe a lot of the activity comes from automated scanners out there uh, attempting common or at least easy to exploit vulnerabilities against the entirety of the internet. We get a lot of activity from that. 
There were actually a couple of brand new ones in the top 10. Uh, one I wanted to highlight that was interesting was a SQL injection uh, attack against OpenEMR, which is a open source medical practice management software. Now, this vulnerability is 10 years old. It was originally patched in 2013, which for traditional systems, I'd say, you know, it's been 10 years. They're probably at this uh, point patched. But with medical software, at least in the medical and healthcare space, there tends to be a, a longer tail for the, the lifetime of some of these systems and more aversion to patching and potentially breaking a system. And so if you're going to go after a vulnerability, one in something like OpenEMR, makes sense as something to potentially target that even 10 years later, maybe you will have some success in. I mean, geez, there's still health practice facilities out there with Windows XP running. So it makes sense that maybe they've got a 10-year-old version of some uh, management software as well, too. Um, speaking of old software, we also saw attacks. Oh, Corey, you have something you want to interject on that one? It's not pertinent at all, by the way. It was an interesting injection attack, but you answered just inside baseball. Our writers were arguing whether you put A or N in front of SQL. And uh, for things like that, it's all how you pronounce the acronym SQL. Do you say SQL or do you say SQL? And uh -huh. I say SQL, but that you, I didn't. I'm not asking you because you said SQL too. My argument was it is a SQL injection, not an SQL injection. The writer apparently was someone that calls it SQL. I've never heard anyone read out that particular acronym. So sorry, inside writing baseball, but. You, you you were the one that killed the tie for me because you just said SQL. <laughs> Corey just had an argument validated. Yes, thank um, you. Now I can go back on the internet and win that flame war, darn it. Because that's what I do of, all day, yell at people on the internet. Speaking of uh, other older things, uh, there was also <laughs> oh, <no>. another... <laughs> Ouch. Hey, I was referencing the vulnerabilities, Corey. Oh, oh, uh, oh. <laughs> well, I showed the, my true colors then. Yeah, another this one, one in particular is going to be super old. This one's probably even older than me. I mean, not literally, but it feels that way. Well, you say that, but I actually had some experience in not supporting, but replacing. Let's get into it first. So this other vulnerability I wanted to highlight is in Microsoft's Threat Management Gateway, specifically TMG 2010. It is old. Uh, one of my very... by the way, it's their the easiest way to describe it is their fair firewall. I mean, they have a lot of other stuff there, but it's their software firewall, despite that weird TMG name. Back right around this timeline, uh, 2010, uh, one of my part very... of their ISA servers too, right? What I forget what ISA stands for: Internet Security an and Acceleration Server. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. On-site professional services engagement for a customer to replace a TMG with a WatchGuard Firebox. I still remember that. But anyways, super old and now very much EOL system. I think it's end of extended support relatively. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. I mean, EOL is one thing, but this is end of service. End of life just means they stop selling it, but they're not even servicing this bad boy anymore. Um, but as far as I know. Yeah. One of the, the top vulnerabilities was a attempted exploit against this particular system. And this is one where, you know, I think it was last podcast or probably every podcast for the last couple of months, we pointed at internet facing uh, network equipment as a popular avenue for attack or an entry point for an organization. And if you're still running one of these super old and very much EOL systems, you're just asking for it. And in fact, we did a, one of our researchers did a search on Shodan. They actually found several dozen of these TMG 
uh, appl or appliances or servers still out there on the internet now after the fact. And man, we joke about what was it the the move it vulnerability of you know at this point it's probably too late. For something like a TMG 2010 edition server, it is absolutely too late at this point if you still got exposed to the internet. I would not want to take a black light to that machine and see what's crawling underneath it. Um, anyway, so moving on, uh, one other high-level trend to highlight from network attacks is half of all the detections that we saw on average were targeting the Americas, so North, Central, and South America which has been steadily increasing since quarter two of 2022. I think back then it was around 20 or 30% or so. And now we're up to just over half of all detections. Um, so, I mean, I guess that doesn't mean let your guard down if you're in Europe or, or Asia, but at least with what we're seeing from network attacks, it's very heavy towards the Americas over here. Interesting tidbit. Uh, moving on to the last section of the Firebox feed overall category is our domain analysis, where we look at detections from the DNS watch, uh, DNS firewalling service. In the report, we break it out into detections in three main categories. So malware domains, which are domains and websites uh, directly uh, associated with malware campaigns, either command and control or delivery, something along those lines. Uh, we go over compromised domains. So these are legitimate websites that have been compromised to either post malware or abused to deliver malware or phishing or something along those lines. And then phishing domains, would are, which are specifically set up to run phishing campaigns or be associated with the phishing campaign. Uh, you can check it all out in the report. We go over all of the brand new ones for each of those categories, but there's three I'll highlight here um, in the malware domains. We had one pipe pop up uh, associated with Vipersoft X, which is an info stealing malware. Uh, reason I wanted to highlight this is its latest evolutions. Um, basically, all of the later stages for this malware all use PowerShell, so living off the land techniques, in order to do all of the malicious activity. It actually it's kind of reverse of what we see with typical living off the land attacks, and that this one actually starts with a malicious binary. But then that's just the dropper to then go grab PowerShell and run uh, PowerShell scripts to go run all of the actual bad activity. Um, second one was actually a file sharing domain. This is a compromised website called pomp.cat uh, that was a quote unquote legitimate file sharing website for some time, uh, but it had been abused and basically taken over to host malware on this site, presumably due to not doing good enough protections on scanning files that get uploaded to it. Now, interestingly, the site was actually taken offline by its administrator as of March 31st, 2023, uh, permanently, because they were they're in their statement, they basically said they can't keep up with actually moderating the content that goes onto the site. They recognized it was being used to house both uh, malicious and straight up illegal content. Uh, and so because of that, they decided to take it down entirely. And this isn't the first file sharing website that we've highlighted in this section of the report. It seems to be a common trend of someone sets up a file sharing website, they don't put enough controls or limitations on what you can upload to it, and it gets taken over to, ho to house illegal and malicious content. Uh, the third one that I want to highlight is a phishing domain that was pretending be a sports streaming website. So imagine you want to go watch the uh, the World Cup finals and you don't have access to NBC or whoever it was on this year. Um, and so you go Google how to stream the game and you might end up on this particular website. Uh, it actually had quite a few different things that it would try. 
And in fact, even refreshing the website could even give you an entirely different experience. Uh, some of them would try and redirect you to a website to get you to buy a membership. It was like 80 bucks a year or something. Some of them, uh, which also you have to put in a credit card number, probably just to steal your number. Some of them forced you to try and sign up for an account or sign in through other services to steal credentials. But most of them abuse the push notification request uh, within your web browser in an attempt to gain a foothold and then spam your browser with pop-ups. Uh, so if you're not familiar with it, it probably remember, uh, I guess, Corey, it's time for a pop-pop Corey day when you remember the true origins of the spam that was pop-ups every time you go to a malicious website. Uh, they try and just blow up your computer with pop-ups. Then we saw pop-up blockers to try and control that. And then we saw web browsers actually include protections built in to prevent pop-ups from actually working. Uh, right now, I remember even like to me, ransomware started with fake AV. Do you remember that is that they would leverage web pop-ups to suddenly pop up things that went to the bottom? Got a like, virus. Yeah, yeah, you have a Trojan. If you want to clean it, go get this. So, uh, you know, that sort of adware type of or, or fakeware, fake AV stuff definitely leveraged pop-ups back in the day. And so even though we've got controls to prevent an actual pop-up like that, this type of attack that you just described is not gone, actually. And in fact, now they're just abusing different tools. So you may notice when you go to like news websites or Facebook or whatever, you'll get that little pop-up at the top saying, do you want to allow notifications, notifications for the site? And that's designed to allow it to do like push to you like, oh, hey, someone just liked one of your posts or hey, there's a new news article. But on top of that, it actually gives that website and that specifically the origin, as it's called within a internet web browsing, a whole lot of other permissions, including the ability to crap out a bunch of pop-ups all across your, uh, your desktop, uh, even if you're not directly browsing to that domain. It just can, in the background, get that push notification and then open up a page saying, hey, you've got a virus. Go buy Semantic AV for $700 a year in order to remediate it. Like I speak from experience on that one, I had to help a family member out that clicked the notifications allow button once. And anytime they opened Chrome, <laughs> it just blew up their computer with these, you've got viruses. Um, so it's still very much there. They've just changed it to work with the mechanisms that are in place. And they're actually getting kind of crafty about tricking people into allowing notifications. We've seen some websites where, you know what a CAPTCHA is, you know, enter in those little numbers to prove you're, you're not a robot. Well, they'll say, prove you're not a real robot, click the allow notifications button in order to prove it. And that is one way to social engineer someone into giving those permissions to that potentially malicious or at least sketchy domain. So anyways, takeaways from the Firebox feed section. Uh, we had a few in the report. I'll just go over these ones at a, a high level. Um, hardened non-Windows system. So we pointed out that one of our top new threats was a Linux-based downloader. Uh, we know that Windows is king in the enterprise space, but a lot of organizations still have Linux-based systems and Mac OS as well, too. And while we know Mac doesn't get malware, uh, Linux potentially can. So make sure you've got endpoint protection installed on your system, regardless of the operating system. And, and maybe the Mac, too, since Mark is obviously being sarcastic as heck. <laughs> now, also beware of living off the land techniques. So we highlighted Vipersoft X as a malware that... Uh, utilizes live, living off the land techniques in order to fly in under the radar and carry out its malicious activity. Understand the risks of open source. 
So open source software like OpenEMR can be a great cost savings tool, uh, especially if you have the capabilities of maintaining it internally, but it does come with trade-offs. Like one of the big things with using open source is that you in general don't have like enterprise support agreements, which means it can take a little bit longer to resolve vulnerabilities, can take longer to get things fixed if you don't have that engineering expertise to fix it on your own. The trade-offs though can be great though. Like you get the benefit of someone else having already developed this tool, this plugin, this application, whatever, and you can generally get it running without needing to pay thousands of dollars for whatever that system is. Um, so moving on though, uh, last section is our endpoint section where we had uh, an equally large overhaul in terms of the data that we show and some of the data slices we're able to give. So again, endpoint comes from telemetry we get from both Panda 8360 installations and WatchGuard EPDR. Um, when we looked at endpoint, uh, we tried to split it out in, uh, instead of per device, because endpoint malware is a little, I guess, more rare than perimeter malware detections. We split out the data in per 1,000 active machines, uh, just to give a more reliable number. By the way, it's good that it's more rare. Hopefully it's because uh, most of those endpoints are usually behind a network device that is filtering a lot for them. So yeah, I mean, agreed. Good point. I'm willing to bet that what we're seeing actually makes sense with the overwhelming majority of malware picked up by the perimeter for those that have that perimeter protection in place. And another good reason for layers of security organization. Uh, when we look at endpoints though, uh, we found that for quarter one of this year, uh, we saw around 1,068 attacks blocked per 100,000 active machines. So when you think about it, it's actually a decently small amount of malware that is making it onto the endpoints, which is fantastic to hear uh, if you are a organization with a massive or even small user workforce. Um, and in fact, so we took a look at some other splits for this data too. Um, so we built a chart of bucketing detection counts. So machines that saw one single detection versus uh, less than, or sorry, threats that impacted one machine versus less than five machines versus less than 10, 50, 100, whatever. And we actually found the overwhelming majority of threats that we detected in the quarter impacted only one single machine. And that's in comparison to five or less or five to 10 or whatever. So it seems like a lot of the malware that's making way onto the endpoints is at least specialized enough or uses some form of polymorphic code or whatever, where it's only impacting a single endpoint versus a large breadth of, uh, of machines. And in fact, there were only 195 campaigns in total that affected more than 100 machines uh, in our data for the quarter. Uh, one of those. Yeah, and most... I, I think another great perspective. Just sorry, I'm just still marketing our perspective change in the report, and I think that's why you know looking at raw volume, you wouldn't get this kind of information. So really breaking it down to, like we couldn't really break it down to single machines, but dropping it down to how many threats per 100k. 100k may seem like a lot, but on the endpoint side of things, we have millions. I mean, uh, Panda was in business a long time before even we acquired them. So there's millions of endpoints of data. So it still gives you that kind of, you know, if I'm just a network owner of, of 10 networks, what would malware look like? So again, just think it's an interesting new perspective that allowed us to find new insights like specifically this one that 
the campaigns that use unique malware more with more than one machine are actually pretty low. It's often so specific that you know only 195 campaigns affected 100 machines. Yep, or more. Um, so when we look at a few of the more prevalent ones, the most prevalent was a variant called Gluptaba, Glupteba, Gluptiba. How do you pronounce it, Corey? Gluptaba? Gluptaba, like the, the first Gluptaba. way you said it is how I would have said it. When you finally said Glutiba, I, I was like, oh, wow, I never would have said it, but I guess that's equally valid. I, I have no clue. This is a foreign <laughs> word to me. I wonder if it literally is a foreign word. It's entirely possible. Well, it was our most prevalent malware variant for the quarter, affecting on average uh, 102 machines per 100,000. If you're not familiar with that, Gluptiba or Gluptiba, uh, it is a botnet slash loader slash info stealer slash crypto miner. It's really a jack of all trades uh, in order to deliver some end payload onto a machine. Uh, it's got some history. So Google actually disrupted this botnet back in 2021, uh, but we saw a resurgence of it in late 2022 leading into early 2023, hence seeing it show up in our telemetry uh, for this report for the first quarter of this year. Um, another relatively prevalent one coming in at 88 detections per 100,000 machines uh, was more of a, a PUP, a potentially unwanted program, uh, but one worth highlighting called Hacking Tool Auto KMS. Uh, so this detection category uh, is an umbrella term for cracked Microsoft software. Uh, which they, to you, re, real quick backup here, the yeah. auto KMS, the KMS, yeah. whether it's KMS or auto KMS, that is the term that is basically like it's a KMS server. Microsoft products now need online connection to get DRM, you know, uh, validation. And these auto KMSs are just internal fake validation servers for Microsoft software. I did want to step back to, to PUPS real quick because I didn't know if people were getting confused that you're defining that term too. But uh, auto KMS could be one good uh, example of a unwanted program because you don't want crack software on your business network for sure. But other examples could be a lot of technically le legitimate in certain use the software. I, I often use Nmap as a good example of the kind of thing that might show up on some systems with pups uh, or, or Mimikatz, by the way, for sure. I, I would say that's probably leaning towards unwanted malware even. But the point is things like Nmap or, or Mimikatz or any tool that comes with Kali Linux, your security team might actually have all that legitimately, which is why it's not necessarily malware. But those are the typical, besides cracking tools and, and pure adware, it's a, it's a lot of the hack tools that might have legitimate purposes too that show up as pups. But back to KMS, the, the way, you know, basically that the server software to crack your Microsoft products. Which we saw a lot of activity server. from that one, yeah. Um, and it comes to other pups too. We did see other things like key generators for applications, ones that aren't cloud-based activations, ones that can just take a CD key in order to allow it to work. But like Corey said, basically things that you, hopefully if you're a good law-abiding citizen, don't want on your network, the ones that aren't quite you know, a remote access Trojan that's going to give a threat actor access into your, your network. That said, 
tools like these auto KMS things or cracking software typically do include malicious code in them too, especially if you're getting them from unscrupulous websites. Uh, so just keep that in mind if you decide you do want to break uh, licensing agreements and conduct really theft of intellectual property, <laughs> you might get more than what you asked for. By the way, uh, I'm going to, I, I agree 100% with you. Piracy is bad, but I got to say, this is totally for just our, our gamer interested listeners. I am actually sick of any type of content that is single player offline content or, or even a program that is entirely offline requiring an online connection for DRM. Uh, like as a pain user that absolutely does not want to use tools to pirate software that buys all the stuff that I use on my lovely Steam Deck and Asus Ag uh, ROG Ally, I want to buy these games, but then I can never play them half the time because the stupid company is getting DDoSed or I'm on a plane or a train and it's literally 35 gigabyte software sitting on my darn device that I paid for that is purely an offline portion. So uh, I will say piracy bad. Don't do it in your business. Don't do it at all. It's illegal. Well, but the, the fact that your this? software requires this online server connection to be validated, screw you, Mr. Vendor. Sorry. It's just my soapbox. Get down off the do soapbox. I'll, I'll calm down. <laughs> Other sections in the uh, the endpoint section of the report. Uh, so we looked at uh, detection methods. So within uh, WatchGuard EPDR, there's actually multiple layers for the endpoint protection in order to identify and stop a threat. Um, so as an example, 53% of the malware that we saw for the quarter was actually caught by the signature. And this is kind of proof that you know signatures, they still have their place. They're really good at quickly and efficiently identifying known threats. But again, only 53% of the threats that we saw at the endpoint were ultimately caught with one of these signatures, meaning if that's the only thing you're relying on for your security product, you're missing a whole lot of other threats that are out there. Um, other buckets that are included in EPDR, 17.5% of all malware was caught using our contextual engine, basically looking at not just what's running, but what it is doing, how it is running. Good example of this is we might allow PowerShell to run but certain PowerShell activity, like disabling the anti-malware scan interface, um, changing the PowerShell security context. Right, hidden mode, dropping yep. the IPS. They're all red flags with those behaviors that can potentially trigger a detection and a block for that particular process. And weighted, by the way, because sometimes administrators do run PowerShell in hidden mode, for example, yep. when they're doing something on your computer. But if it piles up with that and five other indicators, the whole context of that's why we call it the contextual engine. The context of everything is weighted in a way that tells us, oh, this is malicious usage of, of something that might seem legitimate. Yep. Um, our cloud classification engine caught 11% of threats that are out there. So this includes things like some machine learning models that exist just in our cloud platform, our collective intelligence that we get from all WatchGuard customers flagging stuff as malicious or good that helps uh, feed the engine as well, too. Uh, when it came to WatchGuard Labs developed rules, that caught 9.1% of threats that are out there. So these are custom rules written by our malware analysts and 
um, cyber threat researchers to catch some of the newest variants and newest trends in malware activity. Re yeah, real quick pause, because it's uh, we actually use both these terms in our report, and it's even our internal folks. Uh, who you're listening to right now, me and Mark run something called WatchGuard Threat Labs. That is our CISO office team and the ones that do this kind of external thought leadership uh, security research. So we're a smaller group of, of the WatchGuard Threat Labs that existed before we acquired Panda. When we say WatchGuard Labs, that's actually a different organization, even though one of our team members is cross on both. And that is pure malware analyst researchers. So these are super deep malware experts at, at WatchGuard Labs. Yep, well said. Uh, so for rules they developed, that caught 9.1% of all threats. Uh, and then we've got our attestation service. I think we call it our zero trust uh, application service uh, publicly. Uh, that caught 8.3% of threats. And there's one important... By the way, real quick, th that, that means, you know, forget the marketing name of zero trust and attestation. But what that means is when we see something we can't tell you for sure is good or bad, we go through all these layers Mark just la talked about. But that last layer, although I guess there's one more we'll talk about, but that attestation is a human analyst. If it's gone through our behavioral analysis and our machine learning, and maybe we found some weighted things that makes it a little more suspicious, but we still don't have the confidence, this is literally a human analyst with SLA. And the reason we call it the zero trust application service is if you have our product in lock mode, we won't even let someone run something until it's gone through the entire line of these defenses, including that human analyst. And while granted in this day and age of machine learning, that human analyst, while we have great SLAs for a human, by the way, it's slow compared to other technologies. The fact that a, a small percentage gets these humans, but you still get the benefit of that human making a decision if, if our more automated things can't build that confidence is really what makes it zero trust. And one thing Sorry, I want to Mark. point out yeah. is in general, only 0.02% of all files end up at that human with the slightly longer than instantaneous SLA that we get from our automated tools. But their determination, their scoring, their classification for that gets fed back into the system. And that's why we saw 8.3% of all malware ultimately caught because of this service. So yeah, the yeah. very first time they see it, if it's that 0.02%, it'll get to them. And then if anyone else sees that category yeah. of threat, uh, we're able to still block it instantaneously. So, so another way is 83% because a human tagged it. But other than the first attempt that the human never was in the process anymore for that full 83 or 8.3%. 8.3%. You yes. know, once they found it once, it just continues to get tagged as something the human had updated. Yep. Uh, so the final bucket category in here, 1.4% uh, of malware was caught with effectively a, a block list of known bad digital signatures. So this is another way for the endpoint agent itself just to know, hey, if a file is signed by this certificate, we know it's associated with this malicious activity and we can block it quickly, even without knowing its signature, behaviors, whatever. And that accounted for the final small little bit of 1.4% of detections. By the way, that's not to say, do know in some of our contextual stuff, digital signatures matter. And sometimes even a legitimate, what I'm trying to get at here is just because a signature or just because a digital certificate is legitimate, if we start to know a legitimate certificate is being 
by a threat actor. That definitely weights it as something that is an indicator of malicious. But that alone, the original vendor may still be using the digital certificate that's being compromised. So th this is a different, this is a set of digital certificates that are known for sure to be malicious use only, you know. So there is a subcase where we are actually waiting something suspicious because of even a legitimate signature, but those aren't just immediately blocked because of that, since in many cases, good guys and bad guys are using this compromise certificate. For uh, time's sake, I'll kind of blow through these last little bits to call out. First off, believe it or not, scripts are still one of the most common delivery mechanisms for malware on the endpoint. 83% of all of our detections originated with a script. Uh, with other Windows binaries, so other potential living off the land techniques, bringing in another 9% on top of that. Um, and then we also highlighted ransomware specifically, uh, where we looked at some of the most prevalent ransomware variants. Lockbit came in as the most, but Clop was actually the second most prevalent, which makes sense. Probably recognize it from our discussions on the MoveIt attacks from this last month. But in February, we also saw them exploiting a vulnerability in the Go Anywhere file transfer software as well, too. Um, and in fact, we even called out 51 specific new ransomware groups that we just initially discovered in this last quarter alone as well, too. Um, so I guess it's not good enough just to scare everyone. Let's end with some like key takeaways for it. Um, one of the main takeaways, Corey, I think you even wrote this section, so maybe I'll pitch it to you, is uh, combating living off the land attacks. You want to go into that real quick? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, as you just heard, living off the land attacks were detected in all areas of the report, definitely heavily in the endpoint section where we see most things start with scripts or other types of exploits that are leveraged in living off the land techniques. But even in Mark's section on DNS watch, where we saw what was it, V Power Vipers, V the next Viper, yeah, yeah, Viper Power X or something. Uh, it, it was launched via PowerShell and other places as well. And living off the land attacks, by the way, don't always mean folks are fileless. You know, usually they want to start living off the land to clear security before they deliver the file. But as Mark mentioned, in some cases, we've seen files start to switch to living off the land for lateral movement. In either case, they're made to evade traditional defense. Signatures won't catch them. Things that are looking for obviously bad things, like things that are only bad won't catch them. And you need that other bit of defense in depth that comes from you know, being able to scan encrypted traffic, having EDR capabilities in your EPP that are able to do things like that contextual engine can do. So just to combat living off the land techniques, make sure to leverage things like EDR. Make sure to, to pay attention to technologies that aren't just signature based. Uh, make sure to scan encrypted traffic, which is another great way for bad guys to hide. Yep. Uh, next key takeaway, just at a quick high level, is make sure you still have email protections as well, too. As you see through the report, many of the threats we saw, especially the phishing-related ones in DNS Watch, come in via email, and we're not the only ones seeing this. Uh, if you review the FBI's IC3 report, the Internet Crime Complaint Center report every year, they even note that business email compromise crime. Yeah. Yep, is one of the, the largest vectors for monetary loss for both organizations and in Beck, yeah it, it's their number one by far both in reported cases and monetary loss even well well over ransomware and to round it out Corey, you want to nail the the very last takeaway for uh, the report this quarter 
Yeah, this one's more just thematic since our theme was taking a look at our threat intelligence from a new perspective to try to find new analytics. You know, hopefully this report, if you read the full thing, will give you a new perspective of the types of threats uh, out there, but more importantly, the defenses you can add to combat them. But it's not, not just about adding new defenses, it's about going back and taking a look at your own defenses with a new perspective yourself. I feel like depending on the size of your organization, if you're on in the smaller side of the organizations, a lot of people treat security products as set and forget, especially firewalls. Put it in, add some policies to get things working, occasionally help desk gets a call so you throw in extra policies. But if things are working and you don't notice any threats, you don't touch it. But what leads, what happens over time, whether it's firewall policies, cloud policies, you know, your identity provider, your uh, active directories, you just like Windows registry, you start to get more and more crap in there that you may not need anymore. You might have thrown a FTP policy in for a temporary project some contractor was doing five years ago. And if you go back and look at all your policies with a new perspective, that's suddenly a hole. That's something that doesn't even exist at your network. Or maybe you added some policy that you thought was a good defense to something, but you're learning that everything is actually coming over HTTPS and you have no security scanning there. So, so take a look at the defenses you've already had, the policies you already have, the privileged accounts you've given administrative privilege to in the past with a new perspective to help find stuff that might be old now and is unneeded and get rid of all of that. Apply least privilege and zero trust policies, get rid of the stuff you don't need and add new stuff that match your new security policies and perspectives. And if you follow Gartner, get rid of the firewall and everything else entirely too. <laughs> but well said though, Corey. So that's, again, we went 10,000 foot level for this. If you want to see the whole report or even just the executive uh, summary, watchguard.com slash security dash report is your way of getting to it. And man, it is a uh, time to start on the next one, I think. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can just keep them to yourselves uh, or reach out to us on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Don't give them to yourselves. That was sarcasm. We wish you wouldn't. He's probably saying that because we feel like you're keeping all the cool topic suggestions to yourself. <laughs> Reach out. Throw a dog a bone. Ruff, ruff. All right. <laughs> <laughs>